Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The avatars of homelessness are downtown San Francisco, some pieces of Oakland, maybe a few spots in San Jose. Homelessness is almost always presented as an urban problem. But beyond the Bay Area's biggest cities, homelessness has been growing too. Poverty has been increasing far faster in suburbs than in cities for years. And it's time we got a better handle on the people who are unhoused in the rest of the Bay Area and what resources those places have to help people get off the streets. We're talking about homelessness in the places we don't normally talk about. That's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The flip side of gentrification, in which wealthier people have moved into urban neighborhoods, is that poor people have been pushed out of urban centers and towards the periphery of expensive places like our Bay Area. In our region, poverty means precarious housing situations, evictions, living in your car, sleeping in a tent. And even though we know many people are homeless in suburbs and smaller cities, Much of the coverage we do, certainly a lot of what we've done on this show, has focused on where homelessness is most concentrated in the Bay Area's biggest cities. The sufferings most visible there and the problems connected to it have reshaped the local political and social landscapes. Today, though, we take some time to talk with people who've been providing services and studying what needs to be done, not just in our biggest cities, but outside those areas of concentrated homelessness. Joining us, we've got Jennifer Loving, CEO of Destination Home, a public-private partnership focused on ending homelessness in Santa Clara County. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. It's nice to be with you today. We have Ryan Finnegan, who's Associate Research Director focused on homelessness in California with the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley, which also recently just put out a report on changing patterns in uh, homelessness in California. Welcome. Thanks for having me. We're joined by Carrie Abbott, who's director of the Office of Homeless Care and Coordination for Alameda County. Welcome, Carrie. Thank you so much for having me this morning. And Aubrey Merriman, CEO of Life Moves, the largest provider of interim housing and support services in Silicon Valley. Welcome, Aubrey. Good morning, and thank you for having me. You know, Aubrey, let's start with you. I mean, people may be surprised to find out that the Navigation Center that your organization is running in San Mateo County is the largest uh, navigation center in Northern California. Can you tell us a bit about how it came to be and how many people you're able to serve there? 
Yeah, uh, Life Moves is honored to partner with the County of San Mateo. This has been a project that has been years in the making, and it really represents the convergence of best practices and be able to serve our unhoused communities. It's 2.5 acres, 240 units, and has the capacity to serve 270 um, adults, singles, and couples. It wow. is uh, prefabricated modular design, three and two story units and single story units. Um, it, it really is an exercise in being modern. It's a sustainable campus. It has all electric solar powered commercial kitchen at health clinic, substance abuse counseling. So one of the major features of the navigation center above and beyond its purpose-built design the speed and efficiency of which it was built, the public partner, private partnerships that accelerated the execution of this project is this centralized model of having all the services in one location. And what we see Life Moves as a downstream provider is we see that success to be able to matriculate somebody from an interim housing situation to more stable and permanent housing is exponentially greater when you have centralized services hmm. in one shop. And so it's our ability to provide whole person care from medical, primary care, dental care, psychiatric services, and then access to specialized services with housing benefits and vocational and um, employment services. So hmm. I think the Navigation Center is the signal of what can be done in the interim supportive housing space when there's some innovation, when there's political will, and when there's a public-private partnership that really puts getting our people off the streets yeah. quickly and effectively first. Carrie Abbott, uh, Director of the Office of Homeless Care and Coordination for Alameda County. I, Alameda County is really interesting because, of course, it's you know home to Oakland. Um, but there, it's it's much bigger than than Oakland, both you know geographically and and population wise. Can you talk to us about the kind of variation that you see in homelessness? as the entire county responds to, you know, rises in the cost of living and in particular of housing. Yes, thank you. And uh, as you note, Alameda County has urban and suburban and rural communities within the county. Uh, it's very large geographically, and we do see a lot of differences in homelessness uh, from city to city or jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Uh, as you note, and of course, and as most people know, Oakland sees the majority of uh, the people experiencing homelessness in Alameda County, and the majority of those are unsheltered. So we definitely see crisis conditions in mm -hmm. Oakland. But what people don't always see is that we have seen a huge spike in people living in vehicles in the south part of our county mm -hmm. and in more hidden encampments in the east part of our county, where people are also really vulnerable to uh, climate conditions, uh, mm -hmm. especially heat and smoke in the Livermore, Dublin, Pleasanton area. So definitely new challenges uh, for people who are outside and also for people trying to reach them. Well, and you all uh, recently declared a state of emergency around um, you know, people experiencing homelessness. What do you think that will let you accomplish in that sort of countywide way? 
Yes, our Board of Supervisors declared an emergency in September, and we're working on a report back about what we can accomplish using that declaration. Uh, the reason they did that is because we've been really stuck in terms of trying to gain ground. Uh, we have more people becoming homeless every year than we're able to house, even as we've scaled up a lot of our housing and services, and people continue to live in really unacceptable, inhumane conditions. Uh, the things that we would like to do are really to speed up, be more efficient in hiring, in contracting, and in coordination and land use uh, questions. Um, and then the things that we would like to also uh, prioritize in an emergency response are really getting economic assistance, like subsidies out to people who could be moving into housing, but for that lack of assistance. We have currently over 300 units that could be used uh, to house people who are homeless if we had additional economic supports in there. Huh. So, so you've got 300 beds where you, where you, you can't staff them? How, how come you can't fill them? Like, what does the money do there? So essentially, the cost of operating the site is mm -hmm. higher than the income that would be produced by the amount of rent people can pay. So, you know, people talk about universal Section 8 as a response to extreme poverty and homelessness in this country. And that is absolutely the kind of fix that would make a difference in Alameda County, where there is housing that people could access, but for that lack mm -hmm. of a subsidy. Mm -hmm. um, Ryan Finnegan, this, in this new report from the Turner Center, um, we'll get to more of it, specifically the stuff on suburban homelessness in a, in a minute. But there's one line of context that I wanted to highlight, too. You write, it can seem counterintuitive that homelessness programs are becoming more effective even while the total number of people experiencing homelessness increases. Both are true. Talk to us about that. Yeah, I think it's exactly that dynamic that Carrie was mentioning. It's that as uh, homelessness then has spread across the state and the number of people has increased, the resources to address homelessness and the scale of the programs have also grown in order to address it. And so the number of people that are effectively being moved into housing every day across the state has been growing with time. And the number of people that are being reached by different kinds of assistance programs have been growing. But the number of people being pushed into homelessness has grown just as much, if not more quickly. Mm. And so on the one hand, when we think about the effectiveness of programs, I think people often intuitively think about how many people do I see across the street? And that's how I gauge whether or not a program is helping people move into housing. But what we see is that there's actually programs that are doing a great job moving people into housing, hundreds, if not thousands of people every day across the state. But then people are being pushed into homelessness at that same rate, if not faster. We're talking about homelessness in the Bay Area suburbs and small cities. We're joined by Ryan Finnegan with the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley, Alameda County's Carrie Abbott. Aubrey Merriman, CEO of Life Moves, and Jennifer Loving, CEO of Destination Home, which is a 
public-private partnership focused on ending homelessness in Santa Clara County. We would love to hear from you. Do you live in a suburban area? How has homelessness affected your community? Or maybe you live in one of the Bay Area's small cities and you're in a precarious housing situation or you, you're unable to, to keep a roof over your head. We'd love to hear from you. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. Twitter, Instagram, threads, Discord, or KQED forum. Jennifer, how would you describe what you're seeing from your position uh, in Santa Clara County? Thank you. And, you know, I'd like to dovetail on what Ryan was saying. You know, in in Santa Clara County and in most places, uh, 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 people want to blame the homelessness system for for not making more of an impact when we're not the homelessness causation system. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. the, the fact that wages and housing hasn't kept pace since uh, the seventies, the fact that we don't build affordable housing anywhere at scale. And then we spend a lot of time focusing on the symptoms of this crisis that this, that the system is, is very adept at facilitating. We are pushing people into homelessness every single day and then blaming them for their plight. Uh, when we could instead be Preventing homelessness could be providing more interim shelter options like Aubrey mentioned and really focusing on permanent supportive housing. And six years ago, Santa Clara County passed Measure A, which has become really the the monumental policy fund in the region. We've put 50 new projects specifically for homeless people and lowest income people into the development pipeline in the last six years. Uh, And that's across 11 cities here. And that's in response to the fact that we've always had sprawl. You know, San Jose is 94% Uh, single family zoned. (laughs) So we're always going to have people living in neighborhoods because most of our community is one giant neighborhood. Yeah. We're talking about homelessness in the Bay Area suburbs and smaller cities, some of the places we don't talk about it, but we know people uh, are living outside. Uh, We're joined by Jennifer Loving, CEO of Destination Home, Ryan Finnegan from the Turner Center at Berkeley, Carrie Abbott, with uh, who's director of the Office of Homeless Care and Coordination for Alameda County, and Aubrey Merriman, CEO of Life Moves, which works in Silicon Valley. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We can get to more of your calls and comments after the break. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about homelessness in the Bay Area suburbs and smaller cities with a group of experts from around the region. Uh, Carrie Abbott with Alameda County, you know, Earlier, we were we were just talking about Jennifer was talking about the kind of needing to build permanent supportive housing at the scale of the problem, and you all would like to build. I think it's twenty thousand units of permanent supportive housing in Alameda County. Is that right? So we've called out the need for about twenty four thousand new availability or 24,000 units, not all of them need to be permanent supportive. I think about 7,000 would be permanent supportive with enhanced services and medical care. The rest could be subsidies with lighter touch services, but we need 24,000 housing opportunities to be able to end homelessness. Got it. Because I was going to say, looking at Ryan Finnegan, looking at your report and looking at the growth of permanent supportive housing, you know, back uh, around 2008, you know, we had looks like around 25,000 units of permanent supportive housing. And this is something that a lot of listeners may not know, but we've actually added in California a lot of new permanent supportive housing now up over 70,000 units. Um, looking at the data from your report, Ryan Finnegan, how many more units, like how far does that line need to keep going up? Uh, you know, from, you know, it's almost quadrupled, basically, or, or tripled at least, um, you know, over the last 15 years. Yeah, it's a hard question to answer in some sense, because uh, the interventions moving people into permanent supportive housing are operating alongside a suite of other kinds of programs that are trying to meet people's needs. And so how much permanent supportive housing we need in part depends on whether our systems get better at preventing homelessness from happening in the first place or helping people resolve it really quickly. Hmm. So permanent supportive housing is evidence-backed as one of the leading and most effective interventions for helping people resolve chronic patterns of homelessness. So experiencing homelessness for at least a year in the previous three years, plus the presence of a disabling condition, including things like mental health challenges or substance use challenges. Mm And if we're able to prevent homelessness from happening more quickly, or we're able to help people resolve homelessness as soon as it happens, we're going to be able to stop people from having to experience these chronic patterns of homelessness or accumulate high service needs, and we'll need less permanent supportive housing. So, so let's um, let's talk about this a little bit. We're looking at another chart from your uh, report, one of the things, I, I, the clearest chart that I've seen of kind of what I think maps to a lot of people's minds about what's happened is the number of individuals experiencing what, you know, this is the term of art, unsheltered chronic homelessness. These are people, as you just said, living on the street with one debilitating or, or more debilitating condition. My, my question here is when you look at this chart, you see kind of a slight rise up to about 2018. It's going up, you know, it's about 25,000 people. And then we see, you know, basically a doubling between 2018 and 2020. So what is like housing costs have been terrible forever. You know, the rent has been too high for a long time for lots of people. So what happened during 2018 to 2020? Yeah, I I think it's a a number of different things, um, and it could be different in one context relative to another. I think in part, it's that uh, the housing crisis, uh, it did tend to accelerate somewhat. Uh, So we saw rents start to pick up a little bit faster than maybe they had before. 
Um, but I think one of the other challenges is simply that as the crisis has continued and as there's been a big push to try to help people move inside, uh, often what happens is that the folks that can be helped and moved back inside most quickly are the folks that might require the least uh, level mm -hmm. of support or the least kind of uh, service rich or resource intensive interventions. And so that can turn into uh, folks who are entering homelessness relatively quickly, also being among the first to move out. And then folks that have entered earlier, having these prolonged and extended periods of homelessness because it does take more work to help them move out. I don't I mean, want to say that that's exactly the reason everywhere, because there are lots of programs that are exactly trying to prioritize the people with the patterns of chronic homelessness, but that's a dynamic that can occur in some places. I mean, to what extent is this related to or exacerbated by changes in the drug supply? Um, and we know that meth has gotten a lot cheaper. We know that fentanyl has like really flooded the, the market. Obviously, that is only part of what's going on here. But that if you look at that chart and you think about the changes in the drug supply, it kind of matches up. Yeah, I, I think it's absolutely uh, involved, uh, but I do think it's involved in a really complicated way. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think on the one hand, uh, we've seen recent evidence, including uh, a new statewide study from UCSF's Benioff uh, Housing and Homelessness Initiative, where they looked in depth at patterns of substance use as people have experienced homelessness. And many folks started using substances after ex right. entering homelessness rather than before. And so there could also be a dynamic at play where folks are pushed into homelessness and in response to the conditions that they're encountering, including the need to stay awake, to stay safe, there's an increase of substance use, which then can turn into growing patterns of chronic homelessness. Yeah, certainly on the qualitative side of that report, for people who remember we did a show on that Benioff report, that's certainly something that comes across clear is that it, methamphetamine use becomes a protective tool for uh, for the night. Um, we're talking about homelessness in the Bay Area suburbs and smaller cities with Ryan Finnegan, Associate Research Director focused on homelessness in California with the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley. Jennifer Loving, CEO of Destination Home, a public-private partnership focused on ending homelessness in Santa Clara County. Aubrey Merriman, CEO of Life Moves, largest provider of interim housing and support services in Silicon Valley. They're operating the new San Mateo Navigation Center, largest one in Northern California. And Carrie Abbott, Director of the Office of Homeless Care and coordination for Alameda County. I want to take uh, our first phone call here. Let's go to uh, Chris in San Francisco. Welcome. Hey, thanks so much for addressing this. I am wondering if anyone is tracking the rate at which young people come out of the foster system and into homelessness, because I've worked in mental health in Marin, in San Mateo, and in San Francisco, and just anecdotally, so many people uh, can be prevented from homelessness and substance use disorder mm -hmm. if we caught them coming out mm -hmm. of the foster system. Chris, um, I, I, uh, it's a really depressing thought, but we have a great panel to kind of address. Maybe, let's, let's talk about that, uh, Carrie Abbott, um, specifically in Alameda County first. Thank you, Chris. Sure. And 
I will say we still see that about 15% of the people experiencing homelessness in Alameda County had some kind of history in the foster care system. Mm -hmm. But this is actually a little bit of a good news story in that those percentages have been going down uh, fairly dramatically uh, with the extension of foster care to age 21 and housing supports to age 21 and now extending uh, those housing supports up to age 24 we're seeing far fewer people emancipate from foster care into homelessness. Um, that in our last count, we only had 1% of people uh, who said that they became homeless uh, by emancipating in from foster care into homelessness within the last several years among our young adults. Is that the same um, pattern that you're seeing there uh, in Santa Clara County, Jennifer Loving? Yeah, you know, foster kids are far more likely to become homeless. And I really think this is connected to sort of the earlier uh, questioning that you were asking about the prevalence of drug use. Uh, during COVID, we supported 29,000 families who were at risk of becoming homeless merely because of economics. Uh, we learned during that time that more than half didn't even have their names on a lease, right? So the fragility of their housing was already so precarious before the pandemic and a little bit of money really helped them from becoming homeless. We kept those rates down until a lot of the protections expired. And in Santa Clara County, we focus on prevention. Uh, We've been running a six-year uh, homelessness prevention system here that just completed a randomized control trial by the University of Notre Dame that says investing in prevention is statistically significant in keeping people from becoming homeless. Mm -hmm. You know, we can all see the visible people that are suffering and, and, and using drugs out in the open, and we don't see the tens of thousands of families and kids and people that are not in those spaces that desperately need merely an affordable place to live. And, and every single government across this entire nation <laughs> fails mm -hmm. our community by not producing that kind of supply. Mm -hmm. Let's bring in uh, Larry in San Bruno, who's lived uh, some of this. Larry, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, your screener told me to try to keep it short, so I'm going to try to keep it short. Uh, I was living in an apartment complex in San Bruno, and they kept raising my rent and I eventually had to move out. I kept asking why they were raising my rent by hundreds of hundreds of dollars every month. And their answer was they were raising the market rate. Mm. Sorry. He, the answer was that the market rate went up. And I said, what does that have to do with me? Mm. I've been living here. You are already getting rent from me. You shouldn't need to charge me more because the market rate is going up. And the answer to me was, well, if you don't like it, you can leave. Mm. So eventually I had to, I couldn't afford to renew my lease. And when I was looking for other places, the prices were very similar and I just couldn't afford it. And I remember moving out and putting my stuff in storage. And for the first time I got a, I got a hotel for a couple of nights. And then uh, one night I found myself sleeping in my car for the first time. Mm -hmm. And that night I think I cried. I cried the whole night. I was still working and I got to work the next day and my eyes were red and people asked me how I slept. And I said, Oh, I just had a headache. Cause I didn't want people to know. Mm. But I was sleeping in my car. So the thing is, you know, they, they, I, I don't do drugs. I don't do drugs because I can't. I get drug tested at my job. If I, if I get tested positive for drugs, I'm going to lose my job. So I ended up working and working and working. I finally found someone who was willing to offer me to stay in their in-law 
for, you know, a, a pretty decent price that I can afford. And thankfully for them, you know, I'm now saving up to be able to buy a house or put a down payment on a house within the next couple of years. But the thing is, the thing is really greed. They didn't have to raise the rent. Their, the, the apartment was older than 30 years old. So whatever mortgage they had was already paid for. They were just raising rent because they knew they could. And people are doing that all over the place. And what's happening is they're going to keep raising and raising it. And one day there's going to be more and more people who just can't afford it. And they're not going to know what to do. Yeah, Larry. Oh, man. First of all, let me just say I'm so glad that you're able to get yourself into better, a better spot. Um, like I have oftentimes wondered about that first night for people when they realize like, oh, man, this is the situation I'm in. Um, I'm so glad you're able to find the, the in-law apartment. Um, oh, man, so much in that in that story. Thanks for, for sharing it, Larry. And I think, you know, maybe maybe Carrie Abbott, this should go to you, which is just, you know, how what should be the different mechanisms for for catching people you know this prevention side that we have been talking about you know there might be a specific uh thing for foster uh care but what about somebody who's just kind of had the rent raised i mean they, until they just couldn't pay anymore absolutely and this is you know this is what we're tying the increase in homelessness to most predominantly is the increase in rents and you know we saw of course the rents in san francisco spiked many years ago but the rents in the outlying suburban areas spiked much more recently and so the increase in homelessness uh, has really corresponded with that increase in rents uh, at least in our county and that impacts vastly disproportionately african american households in alameda county and so we see that people who are first time homeless are much more likely uh, to identify as Black or African American. Um, and we're seeing increases among people who identify as Latinx as well um, with these increased rents in the, in the suburban areas. So, I mean, I think we're all looking at ways to prevent that through, uh, through financial assistance and legal assistance, the traditional ways, but also by providing new innovative programs like shallow subsidies, where we can keep people who are severely ramp burdened in their homes for longer and providing services upstream to people who, with some help, uh, you know, a little bit of financial support, but also some services support to help stabilize their housing situation can keep the housing and never end up in these terrible situations. And you're talking about when we say shallow, we just mean not very much money. <laughs> That's what shallow subsidies <laughs> means in this context, right? Yeah, it's usually capped at, you know, I think the pilot in Alameda County is capped at about $800 a month, whereas, you know, a new unit uh, with a full Section 8 subsidy might cost the, uh, whichever government's paying for it, more like $1,500 a it, month. Got it. You know, Jennifer Loving, um, this, I feel like I hear this sentiment, a listener writes in to say, the Bay Area is one of the most expensive places to live. I don't see why people keep moving here. And homeless advocate organizations now take so much of the budget. What are they doing to help people off the street? And I, I think what I want you to address there is the sense that homeless advocate organizations, quote, you know, now take so much of the budget. How much of the budget do you actually end up seeing and you know how how do we show how do you show the efficiency of your of your programs and in, in doing what you're supposed to do 
That's a really great question. And I think transparency is so important. If people were to look on the Destination Home website under the Community Planned and Homelessness link, you can see the latest metrics for Santa Clara County. We're housing three to 4,000 people permanently a year, another 15,000 or so are going into temporary, some sort of temporary shelter or housing. Uh, and in a recent debate at the city of San Jose, and I think this was covered by, by KQED, there was a fight over a measure E allocation. It was a measure that was passed to, to fund solutions to housing and homelessness and ho homelessness prevention. And there was a, a weeks long argument about how this money should be spent temporary, permanent, and it was very divisive. And in reality, it was three to 4% of the entire city's budget. Hmm. You know? And so when we think about it in scale like that, if this is an emergency, we should be treating it like an emergency. Declarations are okay, but they need to be funded. They need to be also combined with the allocating the use of publicly owned land immediately. And you need, and, and for example, in LA, when they declared they offered $50 million as the a fast way to get going. And that that's what this comes down to. We didn't get here in, in a couple of years. We've gotten here over decades. There's not a city in these United States anymore where minimum wage equates a market rate apartment. And in San Jose, you have to make $55 an hour to afford a market rate apartment and minimum wage is $17 an hour. And the federal entitlements like, like uh, veterans benefits or disability or anything that's coming from the feds absolutely does not keep pace with with uh, the housing costs. And so you see people that are seniors, a lot of elders that are on entitlements that are paying 100% of their income every month on rent. That's Jeez. no food, that's no medicine. We have thousands and thousands of our elders in that situation today. Man, we are talking about homelessness in the Bay Area suburbs and smaller cities. Joined by Carrie Abbott, Director of the Office of Homeless Care and Coordination for Alameda County, Aubrey Merriman, CEO of Life Moves, the largest provider of interim housing and support services in Silicon Valley. Ryan Finnegan, Associate Research Director focused on homelessness in California with the Turner Center at UC Berkeley. And Jennifer Loving, CEO of Destination Home Public-Private Partnership, focused on ending homelessness in Santa Clara County. We want to hear from you. Do you live in a suburban area or a small city around the Bay area? How has homelessness affected your community? Or maybe you yourself are in a precarious housing situation in one of these places and are struggling to stay housed. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. If you can't get through there, a lot of people want to share their stories. You can try forum at kqed.org or you can find us on all the different social media platforms where we're KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal talking about homelessness in the Bay Area suburbs and smaller cities with Destination Homes, Jennifer Loving representing Santa Clara County uh, Resources, Ryan Finnegan with UC Berkeley's Turner Center, Alameda County's Carrie Abbott, and the CEO of Life Moves, Aubrey Merriman, uh, which works in uh, Silicon Valley, San Mateo County. Um, let's bring in another call. Let's bring in uh, Moose in Walnut Creek. Welcome. Hey, Moose, are you there? All right. Let's go instead to uh, David in San Francisco. Welcome. That's me. Um, yeah, so originally I'm from the South Bay Peninsula area, and I grew up, um, honestly, in homelessness and out of homelessness from high school on. And between Santa Clara County in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, and San Mateo County in the 2000s later, it took me every hoop to jump through to get just free food. Mm. So I keep hearing there's a lot of opportunities, but it was so difficult for me who had a job, but was still living in a tent, especially in San Mateo County, Mm. get any sort of support. And I'd like to hear a response Mm. from that, please. Hey, David, I I appreciate that because I do... Um, Aubrey Merriman, obviously, um, your center, uh, the Navigation Center there, opened a few months ago. And I imagine that it was sort of built to address exactly the problem that David's talking about, which is people seem like they need a lot of help. It seems like they're services, but like, how do you make those two things come together? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, David, I'm sorry, that was your experience. In San Mateo County, the Navigation Center is designed to serve the entire county. And... uh, um, what there is a, an incredible opportunity here for is how do we really ensure that our system is coming together in such a way that is seamless, that it's user friendly. At Life Moves, we see ourselves as a downstream provider. We understand our place in the supportive housing ecosystem, and we know that. What, what do you, you mean by that? Just for folks who don't know that term, downstream yeah, so provider. That, so the folks know that we we had talked about it. Uh, we. Some of the panelists, the team panelists, were sort of highlighting some of the upstream factors. And we talk about upstream factors. We talk about the fact that the calling cards for America are inequality, unaffordability, um, discriminatory policies, redlining. So a lot of the policies and practices that have either been implemented or neglected over the years, that's some of the upstream forces that impact a person's ability to either be in and out of experiencing homelessness. As a downstream provider, we see ourselves as on the ground trying to work with all the human beings that have gone through a lot of trauma that find themselves at a state of experiencing homelessness. So we see ourselves at at that part of mm-hmm. it. We don't necessarily see ourselves as prevention, although I would say part of our contribution to prevention is what we're double-clicking on now as an organization is what is the right prescriptive amount of services and supports that an individual needs in order to exit homelessness and not experience recidivism so that they can stay successfully housed when they land in permanent housing. And so we're really focusing on that 
part of our service model provision. We provide comprehensive services, and we're really looking at what is that journey to to move somebody from being in a position where they're experiencing homelessness to finding a an apartment, permanent supportive or affordable housing or otherwise. And let me just say real quickly, in San Mateo County, it's, you know, the average cost of rent is $3,447. The average apartment size is 867 square feet. And in San Jose, it's $3,021. And in San Francisco, it's $3,336. So San Mateo County is the most expensive county in which you are going to find yourself trying to pay rent. 48% of the county are renters and 52% are homeowners. So we live in predominantly a largely gated community. And so services are often complex or often challenging to navigate. And from a system perspective, we can do a better job at how do we coordinate and bring people together and bring the systems together so that yeah. they're more, they can be navigated more easily. I'll also share that. Well, let me, let me ask you this. Yeah. Uh, if, Somebody is in David's position. Do they just walk up to the navigation center? No, um, they they do not. It's not it, it's not a B. We have a we have a, a coordinated entry system mm-hmm. that essentially works to make sure that we are coordinated, right? So you don't have you know major gaps in the service system. So we try to have a continuum of care that brings people through a coordinated entry system where that person can then be mapped to services, whether or not it's interim transitional emergency housing, whether or not it's other food supplemental support services. So we try to tailor the response Hmm. uh, to what the need that's presented. But again, like a lot of systems um, across sectors, sometimes it's it's not easy to navigate, right? And, Hmm. And you don't know and you get sent to one place or another. In San Mateo County, we're doing a lot more work in coordinating and getting our core agencies, both public and private and community-based organizations, aligned around doing this work more effectively and and having more collective impact. Hmm. Um, Let me share real quickly. I'm hearing, I just want to say, I want to echo what um, Jennifer was talking about, just in terms of you know, with everything that's going on and everything that we're talking about, it's really seductive to, to really, you know, absorb political reactivity it's it's really seductive to begin otherizing and villainizing and criminalizing individuals that are experiencing homelessness last time i checked is not a crime to be homeless or a crime to be poor um and sometimes we we are we subscribe to the false dilemma dichotomy that it has to be permanent housing or interim supportive housing when jennifer talked about that measure e movement Life Moves feels like, and we appreciate our work with Destination Homes, that, that you need both and more of both. You know, to really end homelessness, you're going to need a real robust system of different levels of support, different rungs on the housing ladder that our folks that are experiencing homelessness right now can climb their way to a place where they can be housed more permanently. permanently. Yeah. So it really takes that ecosystem approach, upstream workers with downstream workers, policy and prevention, working with intervention, all in service to journeying people to a place where they can call home long-term and thrive. So that's where we see our role. Uh, uh, go to another call here. I mean, I think you know, we've done shows, uh, uh, other shows on this topic. The problem is that like literally every rung of the ladder, people are, are falling off. Um, let's bring in Diana in uh, Redwood City. Welcome. Thank you so much for discussing this critical issue. 
Um, I'm so pleased that um, our Aubrey uh, Merriman is there with you. I'm former vice mayor of Redwood City and was involved in the Navigation Center uh, in in the negotiation with um, the San Mateo County um, over the Navigation Center in Redwood City. Uh, Grateful that Mr. Merriman is with you. He's a superhero of mine. And, um, And that the point was made that the vast majority of homeless are in that situation, not because of drugs and alcohol abuse, but because housing has become too expensive for them to sustain. Um, It took decades for our communities to get into this situation by giving priority to commercial development and market rate housing. And it's going to take real intention for our elected leaders and others to get out of this situation. And so it is going to require some very difficult decisions. But I think that we're on that road, and I'm optimistic mm-hmm. that um, with these kinds of conversations, we can get this done. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much again for Thank, um, yeah. talking about this important issue. Thank you, Diana. Um, Jennifer Loving, um, when, we, when we talk about building a lot more housing or building, uh, you know, putting a lot more resources, you know, outside of these major urban centers to to help, you know, end homelessness or, or at least alleviate homelessness. Do you think that the residents of Santa Clara County are ready to, like, invest in, in that way, um, especially when, as, as we noted at the top of the show, these initial big investments may not mean that people actually see fewer people living on the street? I think the electeds in Santa Clara County, for the most part, understand the power of working together because of the Measure A bond that we've been working with for the last six years. We are seeing deeply affordable happening in cities for the very first time. Take uh, the city of Los Altos. We are doing a Measure A project, which is for the poorest, lowest income folks in that city. And that's their uh, first 100% affordable housing complex in the city. Uh, Cities like Santa Clara, who have taken on a number of projects, smaller cities like Mountain View, who is able now to develop this kind of housing because there's a very strategic implementation. The county had a giant local source of money geared towards the lowest income residents uh, that our housing authority, our Santa Clara Housing Authority, partnered with the county to provide the project-based vouchers, which is essentially an operating subsidy. And then cities contributed land and the housing dollars that they have, which they couldn't do on their own because, again, they don't get enough money to solve this problem on their own. But when you work together, you see 50 new projects across 11 cities. The city of Morgan Hill has been a leader, and they're one of our smallest cities. Uh, And so you really do see cities wanting to solve this problem but they need the support of making sure that the projects can be funded. Yeah. Let's bring in um, Topher in Redwood City. Welcome. Hi. I um, am extremely sympathetic to how expensive it is here. I lived here right after college in 1979. I graduated and moved out in 86 because my mother was dying, moved back to the Midwest. And I came back seven years ago. And I currently rent a studio for half of what I make. And I'm a teamster with a great big American company. And I'm well-educated, extremely healthy, and 66 years old. So I live less than a mile from work. Most of the things I need to do are within a mile of me. But right in front of my place, I have a couple who've been living in a van for three full years. 
the entire time I've lived here. And I've spent $50,000 a rent, and they're living in a van, and they have a car behind that that they park in the same spot right at Jefferson and El Camino, and they've been there for three years. So somebody's saving money living in a van but not paying taxes in Redwood City. And there's a person who sits at my Starbucks every morning for seven or hour, seven hours. So she has three bags. She sits at the same table, takes up three tables, three, sorry, three chairs and a seven seat, mm-hmm. 17 seat Starbucks. Mm-hmm. She's there every day. Cause she obviously doesn't have any puzzles to go. So I'm heartbroken because every time I walk by situations like this, it makes me sad. I understand. I'm sympathetic, but I also don't understand why there isn't a place where if someone's living in their car that they could go park and have, I don't care if it's a honey wagon like they use in movie sets with bathrooms and showers or even at a public park where we're paying taxes for those municipal setups where a park could be kept open at night and a, and a guard there or a matron type person. And people could park in those lots, use the water and then have to leave during the day. But there needs to be a place where someone could actually go and be safe and not be on the street. I feel very strongly about this. Yeah. Thank you, Topher. I appreciate that. Um, Appreciate your perspective. I think, you know, lots of people have their own uh, stories uh, along those lines. Um, Aubrey Merriman, I mean, I think we want to ask a little bit about outreach, like how you get people into the funnel who may be in these situations. And... You know, and when we've done this in previous shows or, you know, we went down to the Wood Street encampment in Oakland. I mean, one of the things that we have heard over and over from people with these lived experiences is that there are some advantages to living in in a van than, you know, relative to going into some types of shelters or interim housing. So how do you make sure that people actually want to come to you or you're able to sell them on the service when you go out to them? Great question. Thanks for asking. One is the realization of starting where people are at. So just understanding that you meet people where they are and and sort of an understanding as well that um, people experience a lot of trauma, not everybody, but there's a lot of trauma that's involved in somebody's life story. So our team, our staff are trained in trauma-informed approaches. But the next part of that is how do you build interim housing opportunities that are dignified and that have a therapeutic impact and that are safe, that people would want to come indoors. It's it's sometimes it's people are billed as shelter resistant, if you will. Um, but I think there's an onus on the provider side to be able to build navigation centers or things along those lines that are really would want to draw people indoor. Um, indoors and and it's a safe environment where there's privacy, where you have locking doors. It's a non-congregate setting um, where you don't have to sleep with one eye open and one eye shut. That you can um, stabilize, and then you can you know engage in services and supports that you think would map to your personal plan and what you think you may want or need. So I really, it does, it looks at culturally responsive outreach. It looks at bringing our mission to the streets, if you will, to the underpasses, to places that aren't, um, you know, suitable for human habitation. But unfortunately, there are people living in, in places that you can't unsee. And how do you engage with them authentically? And then how do you provide a bridge Mm-hmm. to facilities and to programs that are robust, that are data informed, that are effective, that are effective, that, that can move people from where they are to a place of more permanency. So I think it's a it's a responsibility on the provider side and not just otherizing people that are experiencing sure. homelessness 
to say we made the offer they said no they're shelter resistant let's move mm-hmm. to the next one so you I know right again uh, with turner center do we have all the ideas we need to you know effectively and you know chronic uh, homelessness, or do we need some new ideas about what to do and how to make these programs work? It's a great question. Um, I think there's always room for for innovation and for learning better about how we can tailor the services that we're providing to the wants and needs for the people that we're trying to serve. But I also think that uh, there might be an idea that we simply don't know what to do, when in fact, there are lots of really effective innovations and, and models, just like Aubrey was describing. And what we need to do is make sure that we're implementing them at scale with sufficient resources in the places where people are. And I think that's one of the big challenges for people experiencing homelessness in the suburbs is that folks are in the suburbs for a reason. Um, The overwhelming majority of people experiencing homelessness do so in the places where they were previously housed. So they're already parts of these communities. Um, That's where their families and their friends are. And so one of the big barriers that they face is not that there aren't programs that might be able to help, it's that these programs don't have that reach into the suburbs that Life Moves is really trying to expand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's often really great reasons why they're not able to get to the bigger cities that might have these programs. Transportation is a barrier, but also for a lot of folks that we've talked to, the big cities are places where they might have previously fled from domestic violence or mm. they're leaving behind associations with substance use challenges that they've worked to overcome. Uh, And so leaving the services in the big cities and expecting folks to get to them instead of meeting folks where they are is an especially large barrier for suburban homelessness. Boy, I have the sense this is not going to be the last show we're going to do on this topic. Another, you know, listener writes and say, I'm a senior retired paying a mortgage that's affordable, but I'm worried about the affordability of my homeowner's insurance. I could lose my home because insurance will outpace my ability to pay it. You know, Jeffrey tweets, you know, homelessness is not monolithic. Economically disenfranchised people are different from the highly visible addicts and mentally ill. And another person writes, you know, the investment in housing in the Bay Area by people who do not live in their properties is another factor in the housing cost increase. It might be worth pursuing a policy to require that property owners live in their properties for a certain percentage of the year. A lot of things to take in. We've been talking about homelessness in the Bay Area suburbs and smaller cities with Jennifer Loving, CEO of Destination Home, Ryan Finnegan, Associate Research Director with the Turner Center at UC Berkeley, Carrie Abbott, Director of the Office of Homeless Care and Coordination for Alameda County, and Aubrey Merriman, CEO of Life Moves. Thank you all so much for joining us this morning expanding this conversation around homelessness um, to the entire region. And thank you so much to our callers, particularly those of you who are able to share your stories of experiencing homelessness yourself. Thank you for sharing that. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for the next Hour Forum with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera, 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.